You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 12. The Isle of Wight Festival. The soft pink panther doll, sitting just to the right of the goss jug on the mantelpiece, is of little consequence. It's the psychedelic badge I pinned to it 23 years ago that stands out. A small button from the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival. My brother John gave me the badge a year or so before he died. Within a few decades, the music festival has morphed from chaotic hippie love-in to an essential component of the entertainment industry's business model. Even though weekend tickets to Glastonbury 2022 cost £285 each, they still sold out within minutes. It's now common to see fancy, multi-roomed tents at Glastonbury housing three generations of music fans. Witness the grandparents there for the Sunday afternoon Tom Jones slot. The mums and dads, eager to see whichever 90s Britpop or Manchester band has reformed for the occasion. And the teenage kids, hoping to catch something for older generations to sneer at. And finally, one band, probably Madness, will unite them all on Sunday evening for a big family knees-up. The 1970 Isle of Wight Festival was a different animal. A muddy hellhole of chaos over four days. But what a line-up. Your £3 weekend ticket bought you sets by The Who, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Joni Mitchell, Miles Davis, Jethro Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Sly and the Family Stone, The Moody Blues, Free, Family, oh, and Tiny Tim. There were no acts to satisfy the older clientele because in 1970 no dad or grandma would be seen dead at the Isle of Wight and the idea of an equivalent Sunday Gracie Field slot was patently absurd. This one was strictly for the kids. I remember John, aged 17, leaving the house to join his friends at Victoria for the train to the ferry terminal. He departed on Friday morning, looking like the fresh-faced proto-hippie I knew, and returned the following Tuesday looking gaunt, pale, and probably in need of delousing, all the while insisting he'd had a great time. At age 11, I was too into my balsa aircraft modelling to show much interest in the festival or its music, it was only sometime during the early 90s that the subject came up in conversation. John reacted to my enthusiasm the way he always did, with the same supercilious detachment he normally displayed ever since we were kids. Many younger, and especially youngest, siblings will understand how as we get older, while age differences between friends and lovers evaporate, the gap in years between John and I steadfastly remained at six years, even in our thirties. So, I asked, what was Sly and the family stone-like? They were all right. And the doors? Not bad. What about Jimi Hendrix? I didn't see him. There was a pause. You missed him? I was asleep. You slept through Jimi Hendrix? He came on at about three in the morning. To a classic rock fan like me, this was sacrilege, like nipping to the gents during the Sermon on the Mount. You do realise that the Isle of Wight was Hendrix's last UK gig. He was dead a few weeks later. 
Well, I wish someone could have warned me he was going to choke on his own vomit. I might have made more of an effort. Anyway, it was no big deal. I pressed on. So, out of all the bands you saw there, who was the best? He thought for a moment. Probably Emerson, Lake and Palmer. From bad to worse. In his view, the finest band at the Isle of Wight were a progressive rock trio given to bombastic faux-classical nonsense and interminable keyboard solos. Their over-the-top stage shows and pompous albums subsequently made them, perhaps unfairly, a byword for all that's wrong with 70s music. Emerson, Lake and Palmer were why punk had to happen. To spotty Herberts like me, they were the enemy. ELP? What was so good about them? You could hear them. A fair point. The Isle of Wight featured bands playing to 700,000 stoned and filthy punters. But while most of the music was barely audible beyond the first ten rows, ELP was a supergroup, formed especially to cash in on the growth of massive festival and stadium gigs. They took to the stage in front of a wall of martial amps and an army of sound and lighting technicians, all with the aim of creating an open-air spectacle for an open-air crowd. As for Hendrix, I had a similar conversation with a 30-something Romanian colleague in a bar while working in Helsinki a few years ago. I casually mentioned to him in passing the post-punk Manchester band I saw play Walthamstow Youth Centre in 1979. You saw Joy Division? Some heads turned in the bar at his shouty excitement. Sure I saw them. I also saw the adverts, the clash and the Ramones. It's one of the advantages of being old. But Joy Division, what were they like? I could have told him they were brilliant, that I immediately knew that their blistering talent was about to redraw the map of popular culture in a way that influences music to this day. But I would have been lying. If I remember anything at all, it was the lead singer given to waving his arms around for no apparent reason. An amplification so distorted that it left the band sounding like noisy, incoherent sludge. In other words, a typical live gig at Walthamstow Youth Centre. Someone interviewing George Harrison during the 1980s posed a detailed question about his former band, which met with a slightly detached response. You have to realise that if we'd known we were the Beatles, we'd have paid more attention. And that's roughly the answer I gave my friend in Helsinki. I didn't know that this bunch of Mancunian no-hopers would record two classic albums, some even more classic singles, suffer the suicide of their lead singer and carry on without him as New Order to become bona fide 80s legends. So, if even George Harrison wasn't aware of his cultural importance at the height of Beatlemania, what chance did the rest of us of knowing we're in the presence of greatness, be it Hendrix or Joy Division? Jimi Hendrix's fatal overdose came three weeks after playing the Isle of Wight. For some reason, I clearly remember Robert Dougal quite matter-of-factly announcing it on BBC News the next day. It was the third news item, probably coming after some long-forgotten bust-up between Georges Pompidou and Edward Heath. Grown-ups run television, 
And back then, grown-ups didn't care much about the demise of a hairy weirdo rock guitarist. As John said about missing Hendrix's gig, it was no big deal. That date, the 19th of September 1970, also happened to be the opening day of the first ever Glastonbury Festival. I have no recollection of John's comments on the Who's live set at the Isle of Wight. Perhaps I should have paid more attention. That was the Isle of Wight Festival, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.